Welcome to this episode of Planting Seeds. I'm Keith Jones, the preaching minister of Calera Church of Christ, and I've prepared a short message from Scripture that's intended to be the planting of a seed that, if cultivated, will in time produce fruit in the lives of the listeners. Now, let's get started. Shine upon you and be gracious and give you peace. In this episode, we'll continue our study of the book of Judges by looking at Judges chapter 11. I'll begin reading in verse 1, so if you have a Bible with you, follow along while I read. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. As this chapter opens, we meet a man named Jephthah, who we're told is a Gileadite, and the son of a prostitute. We see in these first few verses that he was actually driven from his home by his half-brothers and told that he had no part in the inheritance of his father, Gilead. This Jephthah is actually mentioned in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 32, we're told, And what more shall I say? For Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdom, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. And then a few verses later in verse 39, it says, And these though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised. We're told that Jephthah was one of these who were commended through their faith. So we want to look at his story. We want to see how it is that his faith worked to commend him. Let's go back to chapter 11 of Judges. I'll not read the whole story, but if you read on your own beginning in verse 4, you'll see that the Ammonites were wanting to wage war against Israel. And Israel was frightened, and they were looking for someone to lead them into battle, and they actually decided on Jephthah. The reason seems to be alluded to in the third verse, where Jephthah had worthless fellows that went out with him. That idiom is intended to convey to us that he was going out and doing battle. He was making raids on the enemy and storing up possessions because of these raids. And he was being very successful. And so Israel knew that he would be successful leading a battle. And so they went to him and said, will you lead us? The problem was that Jephthah reminded them, hey, you ran me out of town. You didn't want me to be a part of you because you said I was illegitimate. They swore to him that if he would lead them into battle, that he would, in fact, be leader over them and they would follow him in whatever he said. So he accepts the challenge and he reaches out to the Ammonites and says, why do you want to have a battle? The Ammonites said, because you took our land. When Israel came out of Egypt, they took away land from us. And Jephthah responded, no, we didn't. We took away land from the 
Amorites and the Moabites, but we didn't take any land from the Ammonites. Now, evidently implied here is that those nations had taken that land from the Ammonites. But as the discussion continues, Jephthah reminds them that it had been over 300 years since Israel had taken that land. If they had a valid claim to it, they should have made that claim much sooner. And he tells the king of the Ammonites that that land was given to them by their God. So they had a responsibility to use it as he had directed. They were supposed to inhabit that and and it be part of the nation that God was building up. If God had given it to them, they could not just turn it over to the Ammonites. The Ammonites are not satisfied with this answer, even though it's been over 300 years since they had possession of that land. They wanted it back. They felt like they were entitled to it. And so they're ready to go into battle. And as they're ready to go into battle and Jephthah has promised Israel that he will lead them into that battle, he makes a promise with God. So we're going to pick up the reading of this in verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out to the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Keramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. As we read this story in its English translation, I think a lot of us are taken by surprise at the conclusion that God would give this man victory and then bring him to a point where he's forced to sacrifice his daughter. This is further complicated by the passage that I read in the beginning from Hebrews that said this was a great man of faith. And then as we read the story and we're looking to learn something about our own interactions with God and how we can honor him with our words and commitments to him, we may feel at a loss to learn any valuable lesson here. 
But I think we can actually learn several things from this story and maybe even clear up some confusion in the process. First of all, in this last section, we're told that the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. We know that he is successful in battle because of that spirit of the Lord. He's able to raise up an army because of the spirit of the Lord. But it also lets us know that something that was said by the inhabitants of Gilead in the first three verses is not accurate. Those inhabitants of Gilead said, you're not one of us. You're illegitimate. You're from a different mother. And the reality is, if we're one of God's children, we're never illegitimate. We are all legitimate children of God. Jephthah, just because of his past, was not disqualified from being a child of God or one of the people of God. We need to understand that for ourselves as well. This is a guy who had surrounded himself with worthless fellows. He was the child of a prostitute. He didn't seem to have a lot of godly behavior going for him, but God was able to use him in a powerful way, and he put his trust or his faith in God to be able to do the things that God wanted him to do. That made him a legitimate child. It was the Spirit of God on him that made him legitimate, not who his parents were or his circumstance up to that point. I think sometimes we struggle with our legitimacy as Christians. We don't always come from the best background. Maybe we don't know the most Bible information or we haven't always made great choices. But at any point, we can turn to God and start trusting him to chart the path of our life. We can start following his direction and in doing so, have the spirit of the Lord upon us and be legitimate children of his. Another point I'd like to make before I get into the specifics of Jephthah's vow is that God gives us blessings to be used by us in ways that bring glory to his name. If you go back and read the exchange between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites, you'll see that Jephthah tells him that our God, Yahweh, gave us this land, and so we were obligated to possess it to use it the way he had directed us. I think there is ample evidence in Scripture that God intends this way of thinking for all of the different ways that he blesses us. If he gives us a blessing, it's intended to be used by us. It may even bring us great joy to use that, but it's to be used in a way that brings honor and glory to his name. Jephthah also tells this king of the Ammonites that the Lord would be the judge and decide between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. What is Jephthah saying? It really doesn't matter whether I think I'm right or you think you're right. God will decide. We need to understand that when we're making choices, when we're making commitments to God, when we're saying that we're followers of God, It really doesn't matter whether we think we're doing it right or not. What matters is what God has said and whether or not we're trusting him enough to do it his way. Our opinions about whether we're saved or not saved, whether we made the right choice or the wrong choice, whether we're living up to our potential or not, are not choices that we get to make. Just because we're satisfied with the outcome of our choices don't mean that they were right choices. God makes those judgments. It's God who decides what's right. So now let's look at the vow itself. 
We're told here that as Jephthah prepares for battle, he says to God, God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever, or maybe even more correctly translated, whoever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it or them up for a burnt offering. This is the part that gives us pause, that causes us to wonder what in the world's going on here. Did Jephthah really promise to make a human sacrifice and give that to God in exchange for victory? Because if that's true, it seems odd that God would give him victory considering how much God despised the idea of human sacrifice and the Canaanite gods that required it. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 18 or Leviticus chapter 27 and read about how much God was against the idea of human sacrifice. But here we are, Jephthah saying, whoever comes out to me, I will give to the Lord and will offer up a burnt offering. Let's be clear here that Jephthah does intend to offer a person to the Lord. What's not as clear is what he means by that. There are a couple of ways that this phrase can be translated that make it a little less offensive, and they're legitimate translations. The reality is we don't know for sure. Did he intend to offer a person as a burnt offering, or did he intend to offer a person up with a burnt offering? Either of those can be right. We don't know for sure. Scholars argue about it all the time, but it may be that Offering up the person and offering up the burnt offering were two separate things. That he intended to offer an animal sacrifice as he sanctified this person from his house into the Lord's service. He may have even intended a female servant. We have evidence in Scripture that there were women who worked in the tabernacle to keep it running. Exodus 38, verse 8, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. There are women in the tabernacle that are doing the work of the Lord in the tabernacle. They've devoted themselves to that work. And so it could be that Jephthah is intending to dedicate someone in his household to that service. But when he gets back, it's his daughter who comes out and he wasn't anticipating having to send her away. And this would have been a big deal because it was his only chance of having offspring that could have carried on his line. He obviously loved his daughter and didn't want her to go away. But his daughter says, no, do what you've told the Lord. And it's interesting that as she grieves, she doesn't grieve for her life. She grieves for her virginity. So it could be that all of this is about her being dedicated to the Lord's service and not as a burnt offering. We do have to acknowledge, though, that it's not 100% clear. And this could just be a way of showing us how depraved Israel had become that they would try to worship their God by offering up a human sacrifice. I'm not here to settle that argument for you. Like I said, there are scholars who debate this all the time. It'd be something good for you to maybe study out and read up on. But there are two things that I think we can learn from this, regardless of which way is intended in the text. The first thing is that God saves those who commit to him, right? It it was Jephthah who said, I'm committed to you. I make you this vow. 
when a vow was made to God in the Old Testament, it carried with it a great deal of seriousness. It took on a lot more seriousness than maybe some of the promises we make to God sometimes. We'll see here and later on in this book that when the Israelites made a vow to God, they would go to extreme lengths to keep that. They would do whatever was necessary to make that possible. That becomes very instructive to us as we look at the vows that we make to God. When we make marriage vows as Christians, we're promising God that the thing that he has brought together, we're not going to separate. That is a vow that should be broken only by death. I understand things happen and there are two people involved there and we can't always control the outcome, but that's the vow. How seriously do we take it? What links do we go to make sure that we preserve that? Because in churches, the divorce rate is actually higher than among the rest of the world. I'm not sure that's how God intended it to be. As we look to promote family values, it's kind of hard to do that when we're not living out those family values in our churches. Another vow we make to God is at our baptism. If you read what Peter has to say in 1 Peter chapter 3, he lets us know that our baptism is a presentation of a clear conscience or for a clear conscience to God. It's a going to God with no ulterior motives and committing ourselves to life in a new age as a new creation. Paul describes it as a death, burial, and resurrection, dying to the old self and letting God raise up something brand new that's used for his purposes. That is a vow we make to God. So as we look at Jephthah and his vow, and we wonder, did he make a rash vow? Did he make a vow that he shouldn't have? The reality is he made one and he committed to that and God rescued him as a result. We have made vows to God. The people that God rescues in this life are the people who keep their vow to him. And one other thought, regardless of whether his daughter was given in temple service to God and dedicated to the Lord, or she was given as a burnt offering, a sacrifice to the Lord, the cost of Jephthah's salvation was one life dedicated to God. We can certainly make multiple parallels with this as we think about what Jesus went through as he died on a cross and was later resurrected by God and lifted up to his right hand and sits on a throne and reigns over us. It was his one life dedicated totally to God that saves us. In the same way as we're told to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to give our lives to God, to follow Jesus, to follow his commandments, and to be the people he wants to shape us into so that we're prepared for eternity, we see that the way that happens is to give ourselves, to wholly dedicate ourselves to God and his purposes. Paul tells us that in light of all the promises that God has made to us, the only reasonable response that we can have to him is to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Thank you for listening. You can find more of these messages on our website, calirachurchofchrist.org, or subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Twitter.